Pray with me, Father, here we are, and we pray that you would be uh, treasured in our own minds and our hearts, Father. I pray as we think um, about you, as we hear from you, uh, that we will treasure everything that we hear, that in our hearts and our minds that you'll be glorified, lifted up. Father, you'll be treasured in us uh, more than anything. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, turn, please, to Hebrews uh, in chapter 11. Hebrews in chapter 11. Uh, I want to read verses uh, 24 uh, through 27. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, 24 to 27, please. Hear the word of God. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Uh, When I preached on this passage a few weeks ago, uh, before our time away, by the way, we had a great time with the Lieben Goods in Costa Rica. It was a wonderful time and all that. We'll tell you about it. You can see the four million pictures that Karen took um, anytime you'd like to. But uh, um, we did have a good time. But, but, but the week that I preached a few weeks ago before we went away, I made mention that I was going to return to this little expression, the reproach of Christ. Um, it's a curious statement uh, here in this particular passage because it says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ a greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And, and we have to ask the question, of course, why is it that the author of Hebrews relates the reproach of Christ to something that Moses was considering since Christ did not come till centuries after a Moses? And then we need to consider that this was a very big part of the calculation that Moses made to do what he did. He said that he knew, as he calculated, as he thought through, that that the reproach of Christ that is experiencing suffering for Christ's sake would be more valuable than anything that he would give up. And he gave up a great deal. I mean, he was, he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which means he lived in the palace, which means he had everything that a prince would have. And so he gave all of that up rationally, not, in a sense, we could say, sacrificially. I mean, he calculated this out, and he said, it would be better for me. Um, it would be more valuable, more profitable for me to not any longer be considered the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but rather identify with these Hebrew slaves. That was a rational decision that Moses made. He calculated it through, bottom-lined it, and said, I'd rather be with them. It's better It's more valuable. It's more profitable. And so we need to understand then how he understood the reproach of Christ, what that meant in his own life. And since the author of Hebrews is using Moses as an example for us of how to live by faith, then we also need to understand this expression, the reproach of Christ. What does it mean? Because we need to calculate the reproach of Christ as well and understand it to be more valuable than his suffering for the sake of Christ than the treasures of America or the treasures of the world or any other treasure that we could ever imagine. And so it's a very important 
expression for us. So I wanted to return to it. Plus, in my own little mind of calculation, I knew that I would be able to come back to it on this particular Sunday, which is the first Sunday of Holy Week, which is Palm Sunday, uh, which is the Sunday that we begin to think about very clearly the reproach of Christ. If you were listening, if you were here for the call to worship, uh, if you were listening to the call to worship, uh, you would know that the... um, I just would like to help some of you get here on time. That's all. 8.15, it's not that hard. Uh, Now, um, if you're listening, I read the very traditional Palm Sunday passage of the triumphal entry of Jesus. And he comes into Jerusalem on this particular day with everybody praising him. Palm branches waving. They put their cloaks on this this colt that he rides in uh, and, and even on the ground and all of that. And they worship him and they shout Hosanna, which means save us or the one who will save us, save us, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. And so they see Jesus as king and, and they worship him. Now, it's a very interesting day, obviously, for Jesus. Because on the one hand, he's receiving all the praise that he deserves. On the other hand, he knows what's to come. He sees through the weak. And he knows that he's come to be the very one who will save his people from their sins. And as the prophet Jeremiah says, he's going to come in on this cult, meaning that he's going to come into Jerusalem as a king who brings peace. When a king would ride on a colt like this, a colt that had never been ridden before, and rides into a town, uh, the significance there is that he's coming to bring, he's coming to make, he's coming to announce peace. And that's a wonderful thing. But Jesus knows the terms of peace. He knows the terms of peace will be his very life that he must give. And he looks down the week and he knows that. So on the one hand, he experiences the praise that he certainly deserves. On the other hand, he knows what that's going to take. He knows what that's going to, what that's going to bring. For he's going to suffer reproach. As, as the wing begins, we, we see that suffering even as Jesus begins to to walk through the temple. He sees in the temple that this very place that's to reflect him has been rejected as a place that reflects God and now is a den of thieves. He begins to teach and he talks about a parable of a master who sends messengers to those he has left behind and ultimately he sends his son and they kill him. And then as the week develops, we find that he's betrayed. And in that betrayal, he's arrested. And in that arrest, false charges are brought against him. He's humiliated as people say false things about him. And we realize that he's mocked and he's struck and he's slapped. And we realize too then that he's uh, convicted really of being the son of God. And he's displayed for all the world to see. And in the midst of that, he's, he's beaten within an inch of his life. So much so that he can't even carry his own cross. He's mocked in the midst of that to where they put a crown of thorns on him and put it on his head. And they mock him by giving him a staff and putting a purple robe as a king might wear upon this bloodied body. And they feign praise and allegiance to him. And then he's nailed to that cross and he's put up for all the world to see. And even the passers-by mock him in the midst of that. 
He suffers the rejection. He suffers the rejection of the world. He's despised by all in the midst of that, the very reproach of Christ. And the scripture says of Moses that he understood that. That he understood that that was to be his life as well. And he considered the reproach of Christ, suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering like Christ, uh, to be of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. You see, there's a sense in which Moses is an illustration for us of Jesus. Like Jesus, he's a deliverer. He delivered people from slavery. Like Jesus, he delivers us from the slavery to our sin. But not only that, like Jesus, he had to humble himself. He, He was in the royal palace. And he humbled himself to be identified with slaves like Jesus who was in the royal throne of heaven and humbled himself and became a servant even unto death, identifying himself with sinners like you and me. And Moses knew that if he was going to follow the calling of God in his life, that it would mean that he would have to suffer. He was like Jesus in in that sense. And of course, Moses would know some of the coming Messiah. How much he would know, we really don't know. But remember, he did write Genesis, and he did write Genesis 3.15, where God had promised to send someone from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He knew that one was coming. He, he wrote Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, when God said that he would raise up another one like Moses. So he knew another one was coming. He had written the Pentateuch, and he had lived all that time through. So he knew the sacrificial system. He knew all of that. He knew that there was to be a substitute representative for the people of God so that they could be in his presence. So how much he knew of this personal Messiah, we don't quite know, but we get a sense he knew some of that. And so the author of Hebrews very comfortably says, when one, even in the Old Covenant, suffers, he's suffering for the sake of Christ because he's bringing this very kingdom. And he's part of all of that. But see, this is true for us as well. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples that night in which he was betrayed? John Chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus said, listen, if you're identified with me, you understand that you're going to suffer as I've Suffered. Now, our suffering is different in the sense that Jesus' suffering was atoning, that it was for us, it was for our sins. Ours isn't atoning. But he said, if you're identified with me, they'll treat you ultimately the way they have treated me. This was no new word uh, from the lips of Jesus. Uh, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then uh, in Matthew in chapter 10 and verse 16, he writes this. He says this. Behold, I'm 
sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them to the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you, brother, will deliver brother over to death, father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end uh, will be saved. I mean, very honest of Jesus to say, listen, if you're going to identify with me, then you'll suffer this reproach, these insults, and all of this. So don't be surprised uh, when it happens in Matthew and chapter 24. In verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations uh, for my name's sake. In other words, if you're going to be identified uh, with me, then you're going to suffer this reproach, this insult, this persecution, whatever form uh, it may take. It may take the form of insult. It may take the form of you being ostracized by particular circles. It may mean that you uh, are no longer influential in various spheres of of influence because of the fact that you're identified uh, with Christ. It may cost you your life. We simply don't know the form that it will take or how it will come. Obviously, in America these days, we're still living in a measure of bliss when it comes to persecution. But we need to be thinking about this because it's true. It's what Jesus had said as we marched our way through uh, the early disciples of Jesus, we realized that this was happening in the course of their life very early on as the church is formed. You remember uh, Peter and John um, um, heal a man who is lame and they're thrown into prison because they did it in the name of Jesus. Later, the apostles were thrown into prison because they were, they were preaching in the name of, of Christ and they were told not to do that. And so when they continued to do that, uh, they were thrown into prison. You remember Stephen um, was uh, uh, stoned, was killed because he preached uh, in the name of Jesus. You know, Saul of Tarsus was one who persecuted the church and thought he was doing the very will of God. You remember that a time came when Herod uh, killed the apostle James and arrested the apostle Peter. You remember that when Paul and Silas were preaching, they too were arrested. So as we read through the book of Acts and the scriptures, we find various places where where this really comes true. In fact, uh, Paul, being again quite honest with us after uh, even his own time of persecuting the church, uh, is recorded uh, by Luke in the book of Acts saying this, Acts chapter 14, verse 21, when they... Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city. They had made many disciples, and they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul puts it very bluntly as he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, in verse 10, he puts it like this. Is it you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to be in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them uh, all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Now again, I, I understand with you, we read verses like that and we just wonder, what does that really mean in the context of our lives? Because again, we've lived such easy lives. And I say we just store that in our souls and realize that this will come true. There's an expectation in our own lives. In fact, this is the reproach of Christ. This is following after him. For instance, Peter writes of this as well. First Peter chapter uh, 2 and verse 20 and verse 19. He's writing to slaves and masters, but it applies to everyone, as we'll see later in First Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. He says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, and is because of Christ, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Yeah, the answer is, of course, there's no credit for that. If you sin and are beaten for it, well, you deserve that. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure it. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. See, it's a calling for believers to experience this reproach of Christ. It's a calling by God, from God, to believers. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. You see, when... Christ calls us, as Clay was praying, quoting Bonhoeffer, he said, when, when, when Christ calls us to follow him, he bids us come and die to our own sin. But he lays us out before the world and he says, there you are, you're going to suffer as Christ suffered. Again, not in a way that's atoning. We're not paying for sins. This isn't because we're sinners that we're suffering. Christ has already taken that. That's gone. We're suffering now. As we follow his example, as we're identified with him, uh, to reveal, to show our love for him. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges judges justly. So then Peter goes on in chapter 4 and verse 12 and puts it like this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler if anyone suffers, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You know, Peter's saying, again, words that just to an American just sort of bounce off, but shouldn't. He's saying, listen, don't be surprised at these things. I have a sense that because of the way we've, we've lived as Americans in our culture, that we will be surprised at these things. It'll be shocking to us, but they shouldn't be. Again, we need to store this up so we're prepared. This is, this is like boot camp. We need to be prepared for these things so that when they come, we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, you know, if a friend of yours faces this kind of persecution, or you read about it of other believers in other countries and other cultures, we could be sad for them and care for them and all that, but we shouldn't be surprised. When it comes to us, 
we, we, we'll, we'll experience the pain of it. That doesn't mean the pain goes away. We'll experience the pain of it. The insults will hurt. But we shouldn't be surprised at it. In fact, Peter says, wait for the blessing. <laughs> He'll be blessed. It's the good thing for you that you'll be blessed uh, in all of this. Now, the people to whom the author of Hebrews writes have experienced some of this. As we know, we've been through chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 32 uh, to 34, where he says, for instance, uh, verse 32, but recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That is the reproach for the sake of Christ. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they, you know some of this, the author of Hebrews is saying to them. You know this reproach. And then he applies it to us all in Hebrews chapter 13. Let me just begin in verse 11. He says, For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The image there, and we'll get to this in a couple of months when we get to chapter 13 or so. Um, the image there is on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament when the animals were killed, they were taken outside the camp to be disposed of and burned. Ironically, Jesus was crucified outside the city in that very place. And rather than being a place of defilement, it became a place of sanctification, a place of purity. And so notice then what he says, verse 13. He said, therefore, let us go to him, that is to Jesus, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. He said, listen. We live outside the camp. We sin outside the gates of the world. If you, we live outside the gates of the world. We live where Christ lives. And they, they persecuted him, right? They abused him. They insulted him. He said, so we live out there with him. That's going to happen to us. Bear that reproach. Don't be surprised by it. Now the question is, why? Why do we need to bear that reproach? I mean, why couldn't it all be over with Jesus? Why couldn't it be done with it? Well, of course, in one sense, it is done. The wrath of God is done. The reproach from God is done. That is finished. When Jesus was on the cross and said it was finished, you have to ask the question, well, what was finished? Well, what was finished was... Payment for our sin. That was finished. That was done. That was taken care of. That was accomplished. That was satisfied. The wrath of God for those for whom Christ died, the wrath of God for those who would believe, was satisfied at that point. Done. But you see, there still is an identification in this life with Christ following his example, which means that as the world hated him, they'll hate us. As he suffered, so will we. And so the question, though, is why? Of, of what benefit? You know, when Moses was making this calculation on what he was to do, the scripture said, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So what did he think about? 
How did he make that calculation? Why was it so valuable? Why was the reproach of Christ so much more valuable than the treasures of Egypt? Well, a number of things. Number one, suffering in this way causes us to depend more upon Christ. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. I'm going to run through a number of things here, so hang on. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. Okay, you get the picture. They were, they were uh, under a great affliction, persecution, and, and he describes it as being burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life uh, itself. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. In other words, Paul felt as close to dying, to being dead, as you can imagine, because of persecution and affliction. It wasn't an illness, it was this, this suffering that came because he was an apostle of Christ. And he thought he was going to die, and he felt that as much as a person can feel that. Then, end of verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He says, he says, the value of all of that when we were in the midst of that, what came to our mind is God can raise the dead. What came to mind is we have no hope but to trust in God. And he said, I want to tell you, that is great. But he also is implying he never would have gotten there. He never would have gotten to that point without that kind of suffering. But he says at the end of that, if I could put words in his mouth, it was worth it. It was worth it to be so afflicted that our own strength was so zapped and so gone that, that we couldn't rely upon that at all. We, we could only rely upon God. And that was more valuable than not despairing of life. I know what you're thinking. That's crazy. But it isn't. That's the amazing thing. It only is crazy to those of us who haven't experienced it, who don't know it. And so the reason we have the word is to put it in us so that when these things begin to happen, then we go, ah, I needn't despair. God can raise the dead. I needn't despair because now I'm utterly at his mercy. I needn't despair because through this, I'm going to see that he really is my all in all. I've been singing that my whole life. And now I'm going to see it. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. You know this situation. Paul has a thorn in his flesh. We don't know exactly what that is. It's not well defined for us in the scripture. Probably not well defined for us in the scripture, so they have the broadest application. He has a thorn in the flesh. He, he entreats upon the Lord three times to take it away. And in essence, the Lord says, no, I'm not going to take it away. Uh, and rather than despair, uh, he receives this word to keep him from despairing. He hears this word from God, verse 9. But he that is God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect, perfect in weakness. Now, Paul then takes that 
that word from God and does a calculation. I've still got the thorn and it's still painful. I've still got the thorn and if I'm judging it only by its pain, I want it gone. And so if I'm making the calculation just on the basis of physical pain, my calculation is it would be better not to have this thorn. But then he plugs into this equation the word from God which says, my grace is sufficient for you, powers perfected in weakness. And Paul then says, I'd rather have the thorn. Because by way of the thorn, I'm going to not be weakened, but learn of my weakness and experience the power of God. And that's better than not experiencing the power of God. See how he's, by faith. And so, you say, I don't have a thorn at the moment. Bless you. It's coming. And when it does, put into the equation. This is going to reveal my weakness. You see, God doesn't have to give us thorns to make us weak. We're weak. All right? We just don't know that. We think we're strong. Let me just tell you a story. Kelly, leave and go. Love this story. We were taking Cade and Kelly and I and, and the kids. Uh, Cade's their littlest one. And then Caleb and Chloe. We were taking the kids on a bike ride. They were riding. We were watching Cade, uh, the littlest one. And, and Cade was being a little boy. You know, a three-year-old boy saying, you don't have to hold my bike. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall. And so he's riding along saying, I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall. He hit a rock and said, I'm falling. I'm falling. I'm falling. And Kelly and I looked at each other. Being the guys that we are, we did save him from falling. But we had to catch the illustration. Uh, two preachers are dangerous walking together. And, uh, uh, and that's it, isn't it? We're riding along saying, I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall. I'm, not gonna, I'm falling. I'm falling. I'm falling. See, the thorn comes in the middle of all that. God puts a rock there, not to make us weak, but to remind us that we are. And so we should, when the weakness is exposed, then you see, we say, better to have the weakness because then the power of God will come and that's worth everything. So Paul goes on to say, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He said, I'm, I'm going to embrace this weakness. I'm going to boast about it. I'm going to tell you how weak I am. For the sake of Christ, that I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. That is the reproach of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm then I'm strong. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. This is a point in uh, this particular letter, you might remember, where Paul is laying out his pedigree. And basically he's saying that I'm the champion of champions. According to the world, they have everything. They have all the money, all the education, all the status, all the political... Um, uh, position everything that a person could possibly be born into that would make them a success in life, making them envied from others, I'm it. And then he goes on, verse 7, and he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may by any means possible attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul lost everything when he followed Christ. He lost the respect of the religious leaders. He lost the value of being a Hebrew of Hebrews. Nobody cared about that anymore. When he went to the Gentiles, they didn't give a rip that he grew up speaking Hebrew. They couldn't understand Hebrew. So when he went to the Gentiles, he gave up everything that was valuable to him in the culture from which he, in, in which he grew up. Nobody cared about that stuff. And it put him completely at weakness before all these Gentiles. And he said, I suffer the loss of all those things because not for a moment did he depend upon any of those when he preached to the Gentiles. All that he depended upon was Christ and the only message that he had was Christ and him crucified, which many of them thought was was foolish. He said, so I suffer the loss of all these things. Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Notice why we must suffer as well. Verse 12, let me begin there. Just a couple more, hang on. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become, become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you realize that when we suffer in faith, it brings boldness to other believers? It increases the faith of other believers. See, the great fear that we have is that, oh my, if I suffer, then I'll walk away from Christ. Or if I suffer, it'll destroy my faith. And so when we see others suffering and we realize it doesn't destroy their faith, we begin to think, Phew, that means it won't destroy mine either. Uh, the psalmist of Psalm 119 puts it like this in Psalm 119, verse 74. He writes, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I've hoped in your word. The psalmist is going through a great problem of persecution at that point, And he's, he's, he's rejoicing about it because he's saying, Okay, as you sustain me, God, and people see that, then as they look upon me, they'll rejoice. They'll be made more bold. So you have to understand all the time. That's why we need to suffer in the context of a community. That when other believers see you, when other believers learn of your suffering and see you continue to persevere in the faith, God will use that to make them more bold. So it's not wasted at all. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul puts it like this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. So Paul's saying, I'm rejoicing in my suffering for your sake because through this suffering, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church. Now, he's not talking about Christ's suffering for our, our atonement or atoning for our sins. Nothing's lacking there. 
But he's saying in order to take the message of the work of Christ out, it's going to require love. And that love's going to require suffering. And I'm going to be out there and I'm going to suffer. And so, so as we suffer, we realize that the, the gospel will go out. It's a great story. I told, I don't know where, in one of the missions books. My sense is it's in a book by John Piper, which is green, which title escapes me. But it's a story about an indigenous uh, preacher in India who has a heart for all the outlying villages. And so he walks for days to this outlying village. And when he gets to the village and begins to preach, they throw him out. They completely reject him. And he's exhausted and dejected and humiliated. And he goes and he sits at the end of the village, leans up against a tree in order to rest. When he wakes up, the whole village, the people of the village, are surrounding him. And he doesn't know what to think. He's thinking they're going to kill him. But rather than kill him, they ask him to preach. And so he preaches. And many are converted. And at the end of that, he says, why did you ask me to preach? And they said, when we came out here and we saw you leaning up against a tree, we looked at your feet and they were bloodied and blistered. And we knew that you had sacrificed, suffered a great deal to come. And such, and if you're willing to suffer that much for this gospel, it must be worth listening to. And so they listen. And so you see, when we suffer for the sake of Christ, there's a sense in which we're making up what is lacking in his afflictions. That is the affliction that comes when we get out this word, when people may turn against us or the cost that it takes to get it there. And yet, that's the thing that will carry it forth. Now I must confess that on this Palm Sunday day every year, there's a thorn that sticks in my own heart. And that thorn is this. That I can't help get the picture of people, crowds of people praising Jesus on Sunday and then demanding his crucifixion on Thursday out of my mind. And what comes to my mind is how easy it is to worship Jesus when he looks like a king. How easy it is to identify with Jesus when he looks like a king. And how easy it is to turn from him when everybody turns against him. Because when everybody turns against him, they turn against us as well. You see, Jesus looks like a king on good days. Jesus looks like a king when there's no tsunami. Jesus looks like a king when there's no tornado hitting New Orleans. Uh, Jesus looks like a king when the headlines say, you know, uh, uh, injustice is being reversed. Jesus looks like a king when, when, when a baby is born healthy. Jesus looks like a king when I get a raise. Jesus looks like a king when I'm not sick. Jesus looks like a king when the 
person I vote for actually wins, when Jesus looks like a king, when, when my prayers seem to be getting answered. And so it's very easy to worship at times like that. But you know, to the world, Jesus doesn't often look like a king. You know, on that Thursday, Jesus didn't look much like a king. He was beaten beyond recognition. The authorities were against him. He was sentenced to die like a criminal. Didn't look like a king. Everybody scattered. And I'm thinking, that's when the rubber meets the road. That's when we need to worship, when he doesn't look like a king. When the world comes against us, criticizing Jesus because he doesn't look like a king. That's when we need to stand most firm. When a Daniel Shore, who's been a commentator on PBS forever, after the tsunami, tsunami says, if this was the work of an intelligent designer, he owes us an apology. That's the time we stand for Christ. And that's the time the world agrees with Daniel Shore and turns against us. When hurricanes hit and people say, how can a loving God do this? That's when we stand for Christ. When people say, how, you know, why marry when you can just live together? When it makes no sense to the world for us not to be engaged in premarital, extramarital sex. That's when we stand for Christ. Even though the world thinks we're crazy. When we live with integrity, when we don't cheat on our taxes, when we report all our income, when we uh, are honest in our business dealings, and the world thinks we're crazy because they know all the ways around all of that, that's when we stand for Christ, you see. And we desire to have a marriage where the husband is the head and the wife is submissive and we're both following Christ and all of that. That's when we stand for Christ even though the world turns against us. See, in all of those cases, to the world, Jesus doesn't look like a king. And when he doesn't look like a king to them, they come against us. And when they come against us, that's when we must stand. For Jesus... He was willing to experience reproach, as the scripture says, for the joy that was set before him. He knew the reward that was going to come. He knew that was more valuable to be beaten than not. He knew that when he prayed to his father, if this cup could possibly pass, please let it pass. He knew that when his father said essentially no, that the best thing would be the most valuable thing, the most profitable thing would be for him to face that cup and to take it, which he did. Because he knew the reward, the glory to his father through the salvation of his people. When Moses looked upon his people and he looked upon the treasures of Egypt, he calculated, he said, the reproach of Christ is worth more than the treasures of Egypt. It's greater wealth. He was willing to suffer the reproach of Christ because he knew by faith its value. You and I. We need today to settle that issue and say, yes, I'm willing to suffer the reproach of Christ because I know that that's of greater worth than anything else.
Let's pray, Father. I pray for me, for us. Because again, I'm speaking about things I know little of. So I pray uh, that you would prepare us for whatever it is that you have for us. And we would be able to worship Jesus on days when the world doesn't think he looks like a king and perhaps on days he doesn't look like a king to us. And that we would know the value of the reproach of Christ and know it to be greater wealth than anything else. And this I pray for me, for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction. Remind you of our Sunday school classes happening in about 15 minutes. I remind you of elders being available to pray. I certainly remind you of our service this Thursday evening at 7.15. Please come. The response to the benediction is a dangerous one. I want to warn you ahead of time. Uh, The response to the benediction is, I am willing to suffer the reproach of Christ. Amen. Amen means so be it. Yes, this is really true. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him. He was able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in Christ Jesus and in the church throughout all generations. And all God's people said, I'm willing to suffer the reproach of Christ. Amen.